Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're happy to welcome you to Cristina Fonseca, venture partner at Indico Capital Partners and one of Portugal's most successful tech entrepreneurs and a true pioneer in the ecosystem. Cristina co-founded TalkDesk, a cloud-based help desk software that became Portugal's third unicorn and is valued over 3 billion euros. As if that weren't enough, she also founded Cleverly, an easy-to-use platform designed to help with real-time triage, agent assistance, automated workflows and replies, knowledge management and customer self-service, which was recently acquired by Zendesk. Together with her operator experience and skill set, Christina brings to the Indico team a passion for problem-solving, learning and outstanding execution. In Christina's own words, she has worn various hats, be it engineering and coding, design and user experience, product management, customer relations, processes, or knowledge management. And in fact, the list could go on. We're excited to bring you this interview with Christina and hope you'll enjoy listening to it as much as we did making it. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Do you get cold inbound deal flow that you'd wish you could help but can't invest in? You might consider directing them to the European VC's newly launched self-paced fundraise acceleration program and community. It's tailor-made for founders about to raise their pre-seed or seed round and gives them a clear 10-step process to go from wanting to raise to ready to raise. It's community-centered, giving them access to mentors and fellow founders to spar with around their process, plans, and pains. Stop sending founders on their way with an empty referral to another VC firm or angel group. Send them to a community and resource that will actually help them go from minus cold outreaches to a deliberate fundraising plan that will actually work. Send them to the europeanvc.com forward slash raise. So, Christina, I remember watching a talk you gave a long time back. I remember it was like around 2015-16. It was a TEDx talk in Aveiro. And it was something around the fact that there's no shortcuts into being an entrepreneur on into having a startup. And you were actually sharing two sides of the same story. Side one, overnight success, media. Life is great. Exciting stuff. Yeah, exactly. Everyone loves you. Your life is super easy. You are a genius, whatever. And then the true story, which is, you know, you chewing glass and humongous and epic fails that preceded that. On that note, I'd like to maybe ask you from a personal perspective, even, you know, After so much time and effort invested into becoming such a good entrepreneur, you have an amazing track record in building TalkDesk, a humongously successful startup. Why did you decide to transition into VC? Let me throw in a follow-up question there. If you had to give this talk again, and you'd call it, there are no shortcuts into VC, what would be like the key highlights? Thank you so much, guys. First of all, it's a good way and difficult one to start, <laughs> to be honest. First of all, when I decided to step back from like my daily operations role at TalkDesk, My goal was not to become a VC. I literally just needed a break from like a chaotic life that I felt was not scalable. Getting into VC was more of a consequence of where I felt I could have impact and use my 
previous skills and my network to help other people become entrepreneurs and hopefully help them develop some success stories as well. Right now, there's lots of people trying to get into VC, like it's in the industry people really like, but I didn't want to be a VC. I thought I was too young to be a VC. I thought I still had like a couple more years to go as an entrepreneur, but it was just the side effect of me saying, okay, like, I think I can really help these people. There's a lot to be done in Portugal. Let's be very, very honest. I think the impact I'm having today is tremendous compared to like if I was in London or in Silicon Valley, whatever. So that was also part of the decision, which was not really like me stopping and planning a lot. I never planned my career that well. It just happened. I got into VC as a consequence of really enjoying spending time with ambitious entrepreneurs, believing I could help them, and having people reach out to me curious about my journey and wanted to repeat that. I have to double down on the question because I really want to put you on the spot. And, you know, you said, you know, there's so many people like VC now. It's another question if they all understand it, but let's not deep dive into there now. No shortcuts into VC. How would you frame that? How would you highlight that? Would you care to share a bit based also on your experience? So I think there's no shortcuts for anything in life, right? The same way with successful startup stories or becoming a VC, These are two very competitive industries. If you want to become a VC and work for a top firm, because lots of people want that, there's few spots available. You need to either have like a very good network, be very good at identifying deal flow. Then there's a tough component of getting into the deals, being able to convince entrepreneurs to work with you, being able to add value to these companies. Like right now, the power is a little bit on the entrepreneur side. And unless you can really add value, companies and founders can just go and pick another investor. So there's really no shortcuts because first you need to fundraise. If like (laughs) depending on your role, but to be a VC eventually you need to fundraise, which is very hard. Then attracting deal flow, identifying deal flow, being able to get interesting deals It's hard. Then you need to convince entrepreneurs to work with you. Then you need to add value so your reputation is decent and you keep just playing the game. Hopefully more than decent, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And then if you do a terrible job, the system will just get you out. If you don't perform and if you don't deliver returns, then you're out. So tell me where are the shortcuts because this is hard work and it's very, very competitive. The same thing with being an entrepreneur and raising money and working with a reputable tier one investors, right? As part of our screening process, we screen thousands of companies to invest in maybe a dozen, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) Unless you're the top 1% as an entrepreneur, you're not going to make it as big as you could. Could you maybe, Christina, dive a bit into how you get that access then? Maybe think of some of the most competitive deals you've won in the Portuguese ecosystem and then elaborate on what were the tactics employed by Indico there? What made the founders picking you? (laughs) Yeah, but it it is tactics in a way, right? It is tactics in the toolbox. Hopefully not be perceived that way, but it's definitely (laughs) something that we all think about. What are the things that will make the young entrepreneurs pick us? I think like the best tactic, uh, whatever you want to call it, is really being helpful to the companies, working for them Mm -hmm. when they need you. Not all success stories are 
super like straight and things work well from day one. So there's bumps in the road, like several of them. And entrepreneurs really need help. Like you need intros, you need to hire, you need to fire. There's times where you're running out of money. So it's being there and being a team player, even if you are on the investor side. And then I think in my case, because I have a very good experience in the B2B SaaS world, that of course is very appealing to entrepreneurs, especially in Europe, where most of the investors have like a financial background. It's really refreshing to see someone that was an operator before being an investor as well. I think this has been the successful uh, recipe for Indigo to get into deals and to build a good reputation. Both me and my partners, we have a very diverse experience. Like we are really complimentary and you need the person that's going to help you on the operational side, but you also need the strategy and you need the financial and the round structuring and the bureaucracy side. As we say, like we also help companies mature from that perspective. And I think like just being there when founders need us yeah. is what's going to help. And Christina, how do you think about when to open up the box of value add? Do you do that before your rounds as well? So you have entrepreneurs out there that you know, these guys, they aren't there yet where we are able to invest, but we are already helping them because we want to be their top pick once they're ready. Of course, that's very frequent and that's fine, right? I mean, unless you come to me and you ask me for an intro to that very cool VC that's my friend, I'm like, dude, <laughs> I'll do that yeah. if like once, once I'm an investor. So with limits, we do that yeah, and course. like our pleasure to do that. Yeah. Just to think of it like the deal flow funnel there, how would you divide it between inbound that, you know, you don't know the deal before it's announced and they're out there fundraising and how much of your deal flow would you say is actually from founders you know already or are working with and you have that deal almost lined up for when they're ready to raise? I'm not sure I can give you very precise numbers because most companies you meet, investing in companies is also investing in relationships, right? So of course, we meet a lot of companies that are not fundraising, that will eventually be fundraising, that are in areas that we follow. And it's not that we just meet companies when they are ready to take our money, right? Because we'd better start working with them before. Like sometimes there's areas we are not really paying a lot of attention, but because things spark our curiosity, we go and do deep dives on certain industries and become a little bit more aware for problems that some entrepreneurs are solving. So that's very ongoing. I would say it's way more rare that you meet a company for the first time and you end up investing in a super short term. Yeah, yeah naturally. I want to take something you just said and also something you said a while back. I don't want to make this a wishy-washy conversation. That's not at all it. But when you say we invest in relationships and you kind of referred a bit to mental health of founders, and it's actually a topic that we've spoken in another episode with another VC. Do you have thoughts around founder mental health and as I said, not making it a wishy-washy conversation, but what role can VCs play in this? How can VCs help founders with their mental health in a way that obviously makes sense and is a win-win situation? It's actually a good question because being a founder is tough. And you have the first-hand experience, <laughs> so that's why it's really interesting asking this to you. It's tough, right? Because on one side, you need to pass this message that everything is awesome all the time. We are growing, like we're killing it. But then, like, you're always dealing with all kinds of issues. Like, some of them are, I mean, not rocket science to solve. Like, you need to fire someone. Like, you need to hire a VP. Like, that's hard to find. Like, yeah. you're fighting to meet your business plan and to close deals. 
I mean, it's hard, right? And you need yeah. to do all of this super fast. I say very often that if you're growing a startup like crazy, every six months you are a different company and you personally are the one that needs to adopt the fastest, right? So you need to basically replace yourself every six months. And this requires a lot of energy, plus dealing with all the messy day-to-day -day stuff <laughs> that's going on. Some investors understand that. As an investor, you cannot replace the founder. You cannot do the founder's job, but you need to enable the founder to perform at his or her best. For example, we've worked with coaches, with coaching programs, to help founders like transition and grow as part of this tough journey. But that's it. We have like a, a partner that provides those services. And every time we feel like founders are a little bit struggling or could use some help to get to the next level, we recommend them to do a personalized program in that regard. We are investors in a mental wellness company, which is Zenclub. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we believe the problem is quite it's serious. <laughs> and yeah. there's, there's opportunity for technology to help in that regard. I've never had the experience that you've had of building such a huge company. You know, it's a Portuguese tech success story. It is a European tech success story. It is a worldwide tech success story, I'd say. From my small perspective, you know, my company is an SME. Often it's the pain of being misunderstood. And you actually spoke about this in the, in the conference I was talking about, you know, your family maybe had the expectation of you taking a well-paid job and you're crazy and you go and you start a company. And you know, that, that's fun for some time, but it also creates some tensions, right? And I feel that the struggles of a founder is often the struggle of feeling lonely, of being misunderstood. And it's particularly relevant in the early stages. And then as you start getting success, the tension changes from side to side. Is this something that you try and create an environment of discussion within your portfolio of founders? Do you have kind of mechanisms in place? Is this something that you're looking at or is it in a systematic way? Or is it something more that you keep an eye peeled as an individual and you, Christina, go, okay, maybe I need to have that chat with that founder versus doing something more systematic. It's not very systematic, but we try to keep the network as strong as possible so people can be resourceful, ask for help. And also the fact that we meet regularly with companies like really helps us spot whatever area they need help with. I would say we identify those opportunities to help founders on a more personal level or personal growth journeys. And we speak with them very openly. To go back a little bit to your question, as a founder, you, you never think, oh, I'm so lonely. So like, I never had that specific thought. I was always thinking like, who can help me solve this? Like, who is going to teach me that? Who can I speak with that already did this before? And investors networks are very, very good in that regard because typically other portfolio companies are ahead of you and speaking with other founders is the best thing you can do, right? Because they understand you. I think developing this founder network is crucial and will put you in the opposite side, which is, oh, like these people understand me. Life is great. So <laughs> I'm not the only one. Yeah, yeah. It was, for example, I remember in the early stages of the Portuguese ecosystem, there were like a few of us that were starting companies. So I became friends with pretty much everyone that was starting a company because we were all going through the same. Like I remember us going out and we wanted to learn with each other. And that's what makes you grow as a founder. It's not the attitude of, oh, poor me, I'm so lonely. No, 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 that doesn't get you very far. I'm a bit curious. You speak very much here about how founders relate to each other. And we also see in many ecosystems, VCs that are purely financial and teams that are only financial guys. What are your views on that? Do you think that a financial VC can add the value that's needed to the founders? Or how do you see it? Totally. 
it's more related with the personality rather than your background. I think the background can be super helpful in regards to operational issues, but in regards to strategy, helping the person grow, experience really says a lot. All those more financial type people, like I know amazing investors that don't have a tech background or have not been operators. It's just different value added on an operational perspective, but there's common elements that everyone can really be successful at. Speaking to that, I'm curious, inside Indico, you of course have Stefan Moraes, who we had on the podcast before, and then I see you as having the entrepreneurial background, and I'm curious to hear how do you use your whole partnership in the value add towards the founders? How is the interplay between you? How do you see the complementarity? We do whatever needs to be done. We are very complementary. I have a little bit more insights on how it is to start and scale the early stages stuff. I think unless you've done it, probably you can guess, but I'm not sure you understand entirely. Like Stefan and Ricardo, they've been investing for like more than a decade. I usually joke a little bit that people believe they want to work with me and Stefan, but then they meet Ricardo <laughs> and they change their mind <laughs> because Ricardo is the one that's going to solve all their issues. Don't tell us that we invited the wrong people, Christina. <laughs> You actually called us on the fact that we're actually building our way up. To Ricardo. <laughs> no, not, not like uh, Ricardo would probably never go on a podcast. It's like, no, like you do that. I have too much work going on. A funny joke on that or story on that. We talked to a VC uh, in London who, when we asked if he wanted to be on the podcast, he replied, well, to me, we wouldn't have a website, uh, so I don't think so. <laughs> that type of VC is also out there. No, not, not in our case. I mean, we, do, we just acknowledge that we have like different superpowers, so we'd better take advantage of those in our daily jobs. Christina, I'd love to now look at your expansion to Spain and Madrid and hear a bit on your reflections there when we interviewed Stefan. You were very much in the early innings of that path or journey. And I'm curious, we've been through COVID. How has things been? What are your experiences? And of course, how's it going? I'm still a founder. Everything is awesome. So that's, that's... Yeah, of course. Awesome. Perfect. Next question. Next question. <laughs> no, that's my default answer. But I think COVID brought us like additional challenges at the beginning. We spent like a significant amount of time trying to prepare for a darker phase in helping companies like secure some more runway, making sure they could like sustain themselves for as long as possible. Most of them had no huge issue. They've expanded their businesses. It helped really the online. Imagine mm. the mental wellness yeah. company, yeah. but <laughs> like so far so good. At the same time, we managed to start our pre-accelerator. We were going to start remote and then move to in-person. I mean, the program was pretty much remote for a year, but that comes with a cost. And the cost is you not being able to go out for dinner with a cohort, not attending boards in person, which really helps create a relationship, go out for dinner, lunch, have drinks, and like meet the teams in person. I think that's very, very important. We would do that a lot. And now, like in this past year, it has been all to do with Zoom and being in front of the computer. Everything is more transactional, which I 
don't mm. like. <laughs> everyone yeah, is yeah. tired of that. But overall, we cannot complain at all. I mean, like as everyone else, we suffered and adapted. You know, it's a new geography. You know, it's our neighbors. It's just there, but it's yet again, Spain is bigger than Portugal, right? My biggest question is regarding kind of access. You were hinting into this. It's all about access. Access first, access last. How are or did you guys deal with this? And are you probably dealing with it of, you know, a new geography needing to build that level of access that I think in Portugal, it's almost kind of impossible to question that you have it. But now in Spain, the conversation is quite different, right? Can you expand a bit on that rationale and what you've been uh, thinking of and doing? So as everything else, there's no shortcuts. It takes time. There's no way you're going to show up in a geography that's where like, you know, a few people in a few companies, but you're not there I mean, like we have a person there, but it's COVID, so you cannot go out for land. You cannot, there's few events. Startups are not out there as much as they used to be, but we've managed to participate in online events, try to be helpful, pick a bunch of industries where we believe we can really add value and work closely with some of those entrepreneurs, build that reputation for the future, meet companies early on, even if they are not fundraising and keep in touch with them until they are ready. Also meeting other investors is a great way of understanding which companies are interesting and which ones have a chance to be successful. So in our case, like the investor network, which we were very close with already, has been a good source of deals and ideas as well. It has been hard work. There's a lot more we can do and we should do, and we are working on that, but that's the recipe. I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are in the situation where they are looking to expand either an existing firm across the borders or they are looking to raise a fund that will invest across borders. What would be your advice? And if you are more than a one-partner team, should you then make sure that you are equally split between the two geographies? Or how should people wrap their minds around this from a resource perspective? The reason why we started in Portugal and it didn't make sense to do like a pan-European fund, for example, is because here we really have an advantage. It's not that if I wake up and I say, now I'm going to invest in Norway, why should people take me serious there? Like, I don't have an unfair advantage. Here, I have an unfair advantage. So it's way easier to start. Do like a pan-European funds, I think it can be challenging. Like, for example, if a company from Germany comes to me, hey, Christine, I'm fundraising. Like the first question I ask myself is, where are the German investors and why didn't they put money, right? Every time there's a company, a decent company in Portugal trying to raise abroad, it's very common that investors call us and ask us like, hey, what do you think of this company? So in terms of covering multiple geographies, I think that makes sense when you have an unfair advantage. And then, I mean, it it depends on the strategy. Like you can start in one and then like see adjacent geographies as a way to expand, or you can specialize in specific verticals and go that way. But I think, okay, let's be broad and invest in everything. I think you lose an advantage and you need to be specialized or focus on something. Otherwise, it's like companies. You can do everything at the same time successfully. I guess since you're saying this, that your views are unchanged by what we've seen during COVID. A lot of VCs have been revisiting their views on which geographies to be present in. Look, like, I still believe the world is going to go back to (laughs) some kind of normality. Although (laughs) boundaries are less clear, they are still there. There's culture, there's teams, there's people, there's regulation, there's laws. And I think those boundaries are still there. (laughs) The remote way of doing things and 
companies going remote and so on. I think that's here to stay more than investors suddenly becoming like global because the investment industry is becoming more and more competitive. And I think unless you can focus on something that you do really well and show value, it's going to be hard. I would like to hear you a bit about your thoughts and opinions about the European VC landscape. As Andreas hinted, a lot has been happening worldwide. A lot has been happening in Europe, you know, from the rise of micro VC funds to, you know, big, big players in the later stages doing really interesting stuff. So curious to know, what are your thoughts on the European VC landscape? What excites you right now? I think what excites me and where I see the biggest opportunities is a little bit where there's sectors that are naturally hot and that got accelerated in this COVID phase. One was like, for example, mental wellness, digital health, delivery, everything. <laughs> I think those are amazing, but are not my favorite ones. I think those are the obvious ones. What are your favorite still, ones? <laughs> <laughs> so my favorite, like, there's a bunch of opportunities. I mean, there's lots of industries that have not been digitized yet. And I think those people that used to be a little bit, not against technology, but they thought it was not for them, think teachers, for example, that said, oh, no, I'll never give an online class. Construction, procurement, the finance department, the boring stuff within companies, right? Now these people understand technology needs to be part of their jobs and associated with that. Like, I really believe in AI, automation, everything, productivity, not as much in the tech world, but as part of industry and other not very fancy factors of the society. That's where I see the biggest opportunities. There's two that I've heard recently that I found particularly insightful. One was a guest of ours from Playfair Capital in the UK. Chris said, waste management excites me. It's a big right to you, problem. <laughs> Which is like a weird thing to say. <laughs> yeah. And then there was a bunch of articles, I think, written on TechCrunch by one of their, uh, I can't remember if it was one of the editors or, or whatever, but about disaster management, which is interesting. And, in, you know, when we think of COVID and the use of technology and they were anchoring it very much to the States. So tornadoes, you know, hurricanes, uh, stuff like that. So definitely I love that. You talked a lot about founder networks and then you talked about investor networks. How do you personally go about building and fostering these relations, these investor networks? I hate coming back to the COVID topic, but you know, we solved COVID with these remote calls and I would argue that they're great to keep relationships going. But to start relationships is... is yeah. To start new ones, right? So well, how are you going about it? I just wait. I'm like, I'm <laughs> waiting to go back to dinner and drinks mode and coffees. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not as easy because there's a lot of serendipity associated with you meeting people yeah. in random conferences and getting excited by that. If you do that online, it's just one more Zoom. So it becomes like not very interesting. <laughs> Yeah. It was not my best year in that regard, to be honest. And I'm like, personally, I'm not very good at keeping relationships online or in WhatsApps or stuff like that. So like, I'm sorry to all my friends, investors and companies. I, <laughs> I, I have pending messages. I'm not really a good person doing that. I really prefer in-person relationships, but it is what it is. So let's hope the world returns back to normal soon. <laughs> on that note, Christina, we are coming up on the last few minutes of this interview. Uh, so let's transition right to the quick fire round and forget that the first time I met you and the only times have been uh, on it's Zoom, like, so you won't boring. ever get to know me. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. I haven't been a blast. I've just been boring. Sorry for that. Christina, we always end with a quick fire. That means 30 seconds per question. Are you up for it? 30 seconds. Okay, let's go. I'm afraid of the questions you're going to ask. Ah, first question. What would you personally like to change about VC in Europe? 
get us more money so we can compete with the US. And what's common advice you often hear given to founders that you strongly disagree with? Just keep a positive mindset and solve one problem at a time. I know like they have a million problems to solve, but like you need to solve one at a time. Otherwise you go crazy. I like that. <laughs> and finally, what can we expect from Indico and maybe more interestingly from Christina? Interesting. So, I mean, more investments, especially in Spain, which is something that we want to double down on and companies becoming bigger and bigger and as raising a subsequent funds. Christina, thank you for your time. This was fun, at least for me. It's been a pleasure to welcome you here, and I wish we can uh, have you back later in a couple of years or so to reflect on what you just said and see the results of it. Super happy to do that, guys. That would mean huge success, and that's what we work hard for. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.